Dinosaurs and man. Two species separated by 65 million years of evolution have just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? Oh, yeah. Ooh. Ah. That's how it always starts. But then later there's running and then screaming. Dr. Grant. My dear Dr. Sattler. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Welcome to Best One Since the Next One, the podcast that dives deeper than a gyrosphere plunging off the cliffs of a doomed Isla Nublar into film and TV franchises and the fandoms they inspire. A podcast series 65 million and 29 years in the making trudges on towards the conclusion of the Jurassic era, Jurassic World Dominion. This week, we're talking about Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, the weird auteurish middle child of the Jurassic World trilogy. To do that with me today is my guest, Mark Johnson. What's up, Mark? Hello, everyone. You, uh... You, you know, I had to sign into this as Mark Leosaurus. Oh, I didn't see it. Yeah. So, I'll, you, you know, back that up a little bit and introduce me as, you know, my dinosaur alter ego, okay. Mark I'll, Leosaurus. I'll talk to you by your, by your dinosaur, your given dinosaur name. I'm sorry. We're doing it. We're going we're gonna to introduce you. Right. Let's see. This week, we're talking about Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, the weird auteurish middle child of the Jurassic World trilogy. To do that with me today is my guest, Mark Leosaurus. It's me. <laughs> The dinosaur version of Mark Johnson. Everyone's running away down my street right now. They heard your mighty roar. Yeah. And they're, Here's they're... what's disappointing about that about that name, if I may. I thought it would be cool to do a dinosaur name generator. And the mm-hmm. best it could give me was Markleosaurus, which is <laughs> literally what I thought. I hope it doesn't give me something like Markleosaurus. You know what you know what happened is there's a whole team that runs the dinosaur name generator. And they're all on break, and there's like a guy, a guy that snuck in. That's like the janitor. It's like I'm gonna give this a shot, and then he got you, and you typed it in at the right and wrong time, and he typed in, "Uh, shit, I don't know what to do." And then he put Markleosaurus. That's how the internet works, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So we wanted to talk about Fallen Kingdom this week. We're moving towards the end of the Jurassic World trilogy. Like I was kind of saying, that Fallen Kingdom is a little bit of the the redhead stepchild of even this trilogy, which is its own redheaded stepchild of the Jurassic Park series in general. What's your relationship to the film? What's your relationship to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom? Man, Fallen Kingdom was a movie that I watched. And <laughs> I remember it was, I had fun watching it because I was in one of those like fancy restaurant movie theaters. So I was eating onion rings and a burger and drinking a beer with my nephew, who's a cool dude. And I remember... I remember three things. There's there's a weird scene with like a baby a baby dinosaur in a cage, and it keeps balking its head into the cage. And I remember you know what 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 I gotta I gotta stop you right there because Mark, all I'm thinking about is the absurdity and the ridiculousness of Jurassic World Dominion. I think we gotta stop you here, and I think we gotta talk about that instead. So we're gonna run it back. I mean, that's fair. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Best Ones, the next one, the podcast that dives deeper than my desire for Colin Trevorrow to be captured, arrested, and thrown into director jail into film and TV franchises and the fandoms they inspire. A podcast series 65 million and 29 years in the making trudges on with the conclusion of the Jurassic era. Finally, we saw Jurassic World Dominion 
And now, Mark, Mark Leosaurus, we're back on track, baby. We did it. We're talking about Jurassic World Dominion. That was a that was a bit. Yes. We did it. It was awesome. Yes. We we nailed it. I'm into it. Did we time we, travel? We just time traveled. We Wait, time traveled together. How far did we go? Uh, back to the Jurassic era. You know, maybe we'll get the, the experience that Dominion should have actually delivered and, and have to scrap to survive in a world full of dinosaurs. <laughs> Mark, we traveled back to a time when we used to make things and we used to do oh. things. Uh, <laughs> We are, we're talking about Jurassic World Dominion today. We fooled you. It was silly. We had to kind of just throw out the proper order of this series to really capture the ire and the and the confusion and the complete bewilderment caused by Jurassic World Dominion. Uh, seeing it in the theater, there's a lot of text shared between Mark and myself about it after we both went to go see it. So let's let's uh, let's start off by talking about your general thoughts on on Jurassic World Dominion Mark what did you think of the movie itself <laughs> listen I went in with really low hopes based on you know the most I remember of the last Jurassic Park movie was the delicious onion rings I was eating so I was like I'm gonna go see this movie I'm sorry it's, to cut off that story by the way it was <laughs> it's fine no it's good we had time travel I, I'm gonna go see this movie it's a summertime movie I'm gonna put my good times hat on so I went into that theater with my Good Times hat like firmly on my head. And I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I walked out and I was not disappointed. And I had a really big grin on my face, simultaneously just scoffing at just how dumb that movie was. <laughs> you were not disappointed, though? You were, you were, no. What, what you, I guess you said I mean, you had low expectations. But what do you mean you were not disappointed? So, okay, I'm going to touch on Fallen Kingdom again. I thought sure. Fallen Kingdom was like one of the worst movies I've watched in like the last five years. <laughs> I thought it was wretched. <laughs> okay, okay. So, but, 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 I hated Fallen Kingdom. I didn't hate the strong word. I didn't, I didn't enjoy Fallen Kingdom. And then I stayed for the end credit scene. And I was like, this is the greatest Jurassic Park movie of all time. Best one till the next one. I cannot wait to see this next Jurassic Park movie. Thank you for using the name of the show uh, in the proper, in the proper context. <laughs> I'm not sure people have really stopped to... to pick apart or extrapolate what the name means and you really uh you really just encapsulated it in one sentence so i appreciate that i'm here to please so i was i was really excited to go in and see this sort of like you know in my head it was going to be like this sort of like mad maxi and post-apocalyptic like just dope movie where people are like riding dinosaurs and like have <laughs> cool ewok encampments in the trees so they don't get eaten uh and it was not that <laughs> it's definitely not that <laughs> which is a shame because that would have been incredible. And what it was, was really dumb. But like, man, it was exciting. Like, the action scenes were exciting. And when whenever there was an action scene, I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to put my milk duds down for a minute. And, and just like lean into the like glee of whatever's happening on my screen. I'll follow you there. Trevorrow does have a knack for coming up with creative and fun ideas. Whether or not they sit right in the middle of a a movie that's completely tonally all over the place is another discussion in isolation. Yes. Those, those set pieces were really fun and really cool, but they made no goddamn sense. No, they not made, at all. Not a lick. Are we, I mean, are we jumping the gun? If we, if we, if I call some of them out? Uh, no, I mean, we're, we're going to go more in depth into the plot, but I, this is the time. First of all, when the laser guided dinosaurs showed up, I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm on fucking board. Laser guided dinosaurs. 10 year old me would be losing his fucking brains. And I could I couldn't help but just be like, okay, cool. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Like, first of all, it's like a teacher laser pointer that you use for like a cat. Yeah, and she points it on them like one time, and it's not like locked onto them. They just yes! see, a, see a laser once, and they're like, okay, I got it, I got it from here. <laughs> like, how does that even work? Like, what's it the doesn't? I don't know. That? 
What's the chip in their brain that knows like, well, they've had a laser on them. And also, what is it about that laser that makes the dinosaur just know where the person is at all times? Like, what? Mark, didn't you see Jurassic World, the original one, where Vincent D'Onofrio wants to train them to be laser-guided raptors and weaponize them? I do not remember that. It's from the first movie, and I only know that because I just watched it for this podcast. Otherwise, that's one of the biggest things in this movie to me is, like, the entire plot was predicated upon things that I can guarantee no one remembered except for like some fucking weirdo that was like super into the lore of the Jurassic World trilogy. <laughs> um, I want to, can we, can we find someone that's like real deep into Jurassic Park lore? I would like to have dinner with that person. It's the funny through like the through line of this whole series is like, it's really bizarre that Jurassic World became like a full saga because it's, that has like complete lore and backstory and stuff like that. There's gotta be someone out there that's like, knows what the name of the helicopter they flew in is and yeah like, uh, there's someone that knows beyond just dinosaur names all the weird ins and outs of the jurassic park slash world yeah um, and like there's a lore bible like there's a dude that what's the star wars guy pablo whatever pablo hidalgo yeah pablo hidalgo there's there's a pablo hidalgo for jurassic park and he's got like a whole bible and he like sits up at night and like writes new shit I would argue that there's not a person like that for this series. I think it's Colin Trevorrow, and that's the scariest thing in the world to me is that this guy, yikes. But yeah, I mean, I would agree that the set pieces are exciting. I just, I I had no fucking idea what was happening at any point during the movie. And speaking of Colin Trevorrow, it reminded me of episode nine. It was like the rise of Skywalker of Jurassic Park films where... <laughs> You're globetrotting all over the place. You're in a new location every 10 seconds. You're meeting a new character every 10 seconds. Yeah. And you're like, who, who are these people? Why are they involved? And you're going and you're going. It doesn't stop. It's a third part of a trilogy that barely references the first two in the trilogy. Yeah, it has like nothing to do with them. It has nothing to do with anything that happened. I mean, there's like the same characters. There's laser-guided raptors. <laughs> like... <laughs> And there's the the clone girl Maisie from Fallen Kingdom, who is a person that you're also supposed to remember, who like kind of didn't seem like that big of a deal in Fallen no, Kingdom. No, not at all. So even I though she she was and... in it and she was a main part of the the plot, but you thought at the end of it like, oh, you'll, we'll never see her again. That's the main crux of this movie, and you're like, okay, I guess I guess that makes sense. But I felt the same way. Like when I left the Rise of Skywalker. I felt like someone had just loaded up a sock full of Star Wars and like beat me over the head with it. And that's how I felt about this movie. I just felt like Colin Trevorrow loaded up like a dirty sock full of dinosaurs and was just like beating me over the head with it. Dinosaurs and Mark locusts. Yes. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the locusts. I, I know we're also jumping the gun for the plot. What, who in their right mind introduces locusts that were Man. never and anything that came before this into a movie where you have dinosaurs that have taken over the world. You got here. You used Jurassic World and Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom to set up and redo the San Diego sequence from Lost World. Yeah. And we're back and we're like, okay, now you're going to do it right. It's it's such a it's such a cherry premise. It's just such a great idea and like you said it could go post-apocalyptic. It could go people living simultaneously like it could be like a flintstones modern flintstones kind of situation yeah where we we get some of that like we see like a brontosaurus holding up a construction site and they guide it away with a flare stuff like that you see like you know pterodactyls roost, like roosting on the empire state building and then they just abandon all that for one one tiny area in I the know. woods in a mountain range in italy 
Why are yep. we doing that? What's going on? So let's talk about the locusts. Go for it. That didn't make any sense. Like dinosaurs can just go places. They, why are they just staying in that weird little not island? I, it's funny because that's the one part I did retain is that they have little electric trackers in their, oh, in their necks right. that, that, that like zap them. And when but, they call them all inside at the end, you see them all light up. They all get like a glowy head. And I remember, <laughs> I remember la- that made me laugh. I was like, of course, of course. That's how you know that you have made the dinosaurs docile. Ring that dinosaur dinner bell so they all come in. Yeah. I think they wrote themselves into a corner with the locusts, right? Because like normally you have to you have to escalate villains in movies, right? Like the big bad has to escalate. So your yeah. next big bad has to be worse than your previous big bad. And while the idea originally may have been to go that cool Mad Max route with the dinosaurs, which is kind of how they pitched it at the end of Fallen Kingdom, like, oh fuck, society's messed up. Like, look at these dinosaurs, they're like eating street signs and shit. Like yeah. we're doomed. They at some point decided to be like, well, this should be a story of integration in humanity as reflected on the, on the dinosaurs, right? So like right. you get you get like girls in the background feeding tiny dinosaurs like ducks. But when they did that, right, they took away their villain. Right, the dinosaurs. <laughs> right. So they needed a new villain. And they were like, well, what about locusts? Because like, ooh, famine and like, I don't know, maybe they're trying to tie into like the current societal climate of like something. <laughs> <laughs> something something's going on so some you know dude was just like well we got rid of dinosaurs so like locusts and the real <laughs> villain is like tim cook <laughs> and everyone said yes we got it the locusts came out of nowhere by the way absolutely like, I've, I've watched nowhere. this movie and then all of a sudden there's just there's like a scene with some people talking and then there's just like a horde of locusts eating a cornfield and i was like wait, wait what what just happened I went to go see it by myself so I could really immerse myself in the Jurassic world. And the guy next to me at that point was like, huh? And then he le- he leaned over me and he goes, do you know what's happening right now? <laughs> and I was like, I didn't know this guy at all. And we like shared this, <laughs> this bond over like, oh no, we're doing this. They came out of absolutely fucking nowhere and they're completely unnecessary because like there's no need for them because there's like herbivore dinosaurs. Right. It could all just be dinosaurs. It doesn't need to be right. locusts. It could also just not even be like, oh no, this weird like echo of the climate crisis, which is my current running theory that I just invented. It it could have just been like, listen, there's fucking dinosaurs everywhere. They're eating <laughs> the kids. Like they're wrecking the schools. Like you don't you don't need extra stuff. Like that's we, we we've gone to six movies because dinosaurs. <laughs> this is Jurassic World, and we're and you're just living in it. You know, it doesn't make any fucking sense to do that and i would argue after all these movies i think the one through line for all of them is that the villain it's like a zombie movie or anything like that where it's like maybe humanity is the real villain but it's like in these movies it's like genetic researchers and opportunists and like you know billionaire moguls that have no idea of the mcdonaldsization of like genetic research are the villains and like that was pretty much the case here and it's basically like a facebook monsanto apple hybrid and campbell scott looks exactly like fucking tim cook in it so it's not yep. Yep. subtle and now their headquarters is a circle just like in the like apple and cupertino you know it's not subtle at all but it's also like i see a world where there's less going on in this movie you know how like in logan there was like a weird agricultural subplot <laughs> Do you yes remember logan like 
it, yeah. and it's and it's kind of interesting because it's not the entire focus of the movie. There's something going on where it's like they maybe they discover a research position where they're where they're altering dinosaurs' DNA to fuck with different types of proprietary versions of other genetic dinosaurs or like you know there's just something going on with it where they keep it all in league with that and it's just smaller and the, the, the plot is less globetrotting and there's less like jason Bourne fist fights going on it becomes like wave waves of dinosaurs that are controlled by this is insane i don't even know what i'm talking about right now but like uh it's like <laughs> i don't know either but i'm on board kind of like controlled by biosign who was the main villain of this movie is this evil evil corporation they have their dinosaurs there's the naturally occurring dinosaurs versus the evil controlled dinosaurs and that's a more interesting movie and a more concise uh thesis statement basically. that would have been rad dude like if they had like good dinosaurs like blue was like a good dinosaur even though she's real scary and then but then there was like an evil genetic version of blue right and they have a fight at the end that would have, i'd have been on board for that like if we're gonna get ridiculous let's get there's like the locusts will always be a mystery to me. The locust. This is interesting. We're going to do a little exercise. We're going to do a little thought exercise in our head. I'm going to have you do it, and then I'm going to explain it. This is Mark's show now. I see. Take Tim Cook out of the movie. Yeah. Is it a better or worse movie? Tim Cook's the villain, by the way, for our wonderful wonderful listeners. Campbell Scott. He's supposed to be a, a 30 years later version of Dodgson from the first movie. The Dodgson. Dodgson. We got Dodgson here. That guy. I, okay. I liked his character. He was very charismatic. I, I like the social awkwardness. I like the idea that the greatest villains in our world now are the guys that are wearing like goofy cardigans. Right, right. And um, have this kind of gee willikers kind of appearance to them, but they're actually making the most evil decisions and corrupting our world and stealing our data, et cetera. There's something to that for sure. They did the same thing in um, Don't Look Up. Your mileage may vary on that movie. Yep. But there's also like, you know, that's a, that's a good villain. And I think that he was deployed incorrectly. So I think... Technically, if you took him out of the movie, it would be a better movie. But yes. if the if you used him correctly, it's a better movie that way too. Here's my the reason why I asked that, and I'm totally right. So I'm just going to preface this by saying this analysis is spot on. Uh, it's unimpeachable, and someone should put it in the Jurassic World Dominion Wikipedia. It's that good. <laughs> so they got rid of the idea of like dinosaurs as the bad guy because they decided to make a movie about how we have to integrate and live with dinosaurs, right? Because we we are we're destroying the earth. And we're going to use the dinosaurs as like, you know, much like they use zombies as consumerism. Dinosaurs are like the stand in for like what we're doing to the planet. Scientific hubris. Yes. And then we make, so they make the locust the bad guy, right? Because let's extend that metaphor out. But where did the locust come from? The only reason the Campbell Scott character exists is because they needed a place for the locust to come from. Come from. Because if you think about the movie, the main characters and the Campbell Scott character, their arcs never cross in any way that matters. They're two parallel stories told as if they mattered together, but they don't. The only reason that dude matters is because he needed they needed someone to make locusts. So like even the scenes where they talk to each other. <laughs> Listen to what you just said. The only reason that dude matters <laughs> is because they, they needed someone to make locusts. And I said it like it was perfectly natural. It's so <laughs> it was. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a part where... Tim Cook slash Lewis Dodgson is talking to uh, B.D. Wong's character, Dr. Henry Wu, and he says something like, if we don't get this locust under control, then the dinosaur DNA will never survive. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> what are we talking about? 
what's happening that those are stakes i'm supposed to care about like yeah i don't i don't understand but you're absolutely right it's like in jurassic world where there's the whole weaponized raptor plot and it's like you could lift this out of the movie and it's just basically a fun jurassic park redux colin trevorrow just needlessly complicates things and it's like to go back to the rise of skywalker thing where it's like colin trevorrow does jurassic world j.a bayona does trevorrow is like the jj here Bayona is like the auteur weird vision with a distinct visual style that comes in. He did like a monster calls and like the orphanage. He comes in and puts his unique stamp on it, a la like Ryan Johnson in The Last Jedi. And then Colin Trevorrow is like, I'm coming back for the third one, baby. (laughs) And if you were at any point excited about his episode nine script for Duel of the Fates, let this be a lesson to you about be careful what you wish for, because it all looks good on paper. Colin Trevorrow is actually very charismatic and very Spielbergian in how he talks about these movies. And he's a salesman because if you read his interviews, it's about, you know, it's about consumerism. It's about capitalism. It's about this and this. There's actually like a very jarring and very poignant critique and just dismantling of capitalism and like genetic power delivered by Ian Malcolm in this movie. And it's just like tucked right in the middle. And you're like, Okay, that part was fucking awesome. Like that, that was great. Trevorrow tells you what this movie's about, and then you go see it, and you're like, "That's not what the, it's about. It's about. No. It's just like it's it's completely insane." So it's like, I I just don't know what they were even attempting here. Doesn't um, he think of himself as like a very arty director, like a very meaningful director? Well, he was appointed specifically by Steven Spielberg to carry the franchise forward after he saw Safety Not Guaranteed. Jurassic World is the movie he made after that like Sundance breakout hit. I think he he overcorrects, he overcompensates by just throwing everything in at the same time. This is the result. This is like yeah. the result of his own actions, the result of his own critique in Jurassic World about how like a focus grouped experiment dinosaur made by committee slash a franchise made by committee can blow up on itself. And that's what happened. He did it to himself. Yeah, and this is like it's such a fucking wasted opportunity. I'm sorry, I'm I'm drinking like a full Miller Light for this, <laughs> like a giant Miller Light for this podcast. So I'm, I'm I'm swearing a lot more than usual. I read a really really interesting quote. We'll get back to Jurassic Park after we're done talking about the director, who I'm sure is a wonderful human being. I'm looking at a bunch of pictures of him right totally. now on I'm Google sure Image great. Search, and every every facial expression, I'm just like, oof. <laughs> you think you're so cool? So I read this great quote. They, somebody asked him why the, the prologue, because we talked about this after we saw the movie, the, why the prologue wasn't in the movie. And the quote is just, man, it's the best. He goes, he's, the real reason can't be the real reason, because I think it maybe hurts his ego a little bit. Because the real reason, which he gets to at the end of this quote, is that it was too long. He had a time budget, and it was over the time budget, so he pulled that out. The, the sure. whole thing where the T-Rex shows up at the drive-in, that was like yeah, a cool trailer we saw. It was like five minutes long. And then he goes, but he opens that quote by saying, you know, that prologue is really great and I'm really proud of it. I think it was just too Malikian for most audiences. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> and I was like, dude, it was a it was a dinosaur showing up at a drive-in and people losing their fucking shit and you being like, please don't eat that child. Like it was really yeah. well done, but like that was it. Terrence Malick's signature style is CG dinosaurs attacking drive-in movies. That's what he does best. Yeah. Here's the thing too. The Battle of Big Rock, that like eight minute short that they did, I think it was, it came out like 2019. Do you remember this? Yes. After, yes. after um, Fallen Kingdom came out was awesome. It was I know. so, it was so fun. 
and exciting and really in the spirit of the first three Jurassic Park movies. And it's this tiny story about a, I don't know what kind of dinosaur it was off the top of my head, but like these triceratops that show up in a campground in a campsite, like with a, like hillbilly guy with a crossbow and like all these good little setups for this short little film of like this family in a trailer that gets ransacked by a giant T-Rex or whatever it is. It's a gigantosaurus or gigabigasaurus, whatever it was in this movie. And, uh, and it's, it's exciting. It's very well done. Yeah. It's a great, great little action set piece. There's stakes. You care about the characters in it and it's eight minutes long. He did it again where he got, he got us invested by doing some stuff that's like really well done. And then they gave him too much time. And he had to fill that time. With- you know what? I'm going to back it up. I'm going to back it up. You earlier, you said made by committee. So this dude's done a couple of things. He did a small film that was great. And it was a very simple film. He did this prologue and he did this like nine minute short, which were very simple and straightforward, right? Like it was a, the, 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 it was a linear progression of a single plot, right? Right. Sure. And I bet, I bet you if this dude was allowed to actually make his Jurassic Park movie, it would be rad as hell. I disagree. But he gets a bunch of oversight and rules put on him, and he can't function inside that environment. The locusts were his idea, though. Were they? I have it on good authority that the locusts were his idea. Okay. Um, I mean, that's fair, because that was a terrible idea. This guy should never direct a movie again. Yeah, we're... (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to hard pivot. Hard pivot. I really backed it down on that one. Um, (laughs) The locusts strike again. Is there anything that you think is redeemable about this movie? Yes, absolutely. There's a lot I enjoyed about this. You know, like I said, I had my Good Times hat on, and I thought the action scenes were great. What does your Good Times hat look like? It's invisible, which is a cop-out answer, and I admit to giving you a cop-out answer because I don't actually own a hat. I thought it was going to be like the trucker hat that has like the hands where you squeeze the air presser and it claps. You know the scene in uh, Mary Poppins where they like do the dance and it's all animated? Oh, yeah. It looks like Dick Van Dyke's hat in that. That's, that's my good times hat. That's nice. That's wholesome. <laughs> I know, right? I'm family friendly. So I think he can construct a really good action scene, which I think is pretty rare these days because True. there's too much shaky cam. There's too, The edits are way too fast. Like... And there might not be a good reason, like a good narrative reason for a bunch of raptors chasing a motorbike, but it was fucking cool. <laughs> and it was really well put together so that you could you could follow the narrative of the action scene itself, even through all the scene changes and environment changes. And I, I was very impressed by that because I had my Good Times hat on. I really liked when they're flying the plane and they turn off the anti-Pteranodon radar and the Pteranodon just immediately shows up. <laughs> right, that's right the shit away. out of the plane and then it's like, peace. And that's it. <laughs> that, they should have turned that off. They, they, they knew what was going to happen. For listeners at home, there's that probably have not seen this movie or if you have and just maybe blocked this part out, but the compound, the Biosign compound has a ADR aerial defense radius or something. I don't know. I really don't know. It's like a sonar laser grid to keep the aerial dinosaurs from escaping but yeah, yeah. As, soon as, as soon as they turn it off it literally just shows up big, makes a big scratch on the middle of their plane and then takes the fuck off and it's like this big epic set piece it's so fast i don't know why i loved it but i was like yeah no i'm on board for that that was great and then the crazy <laughs> crazy dinosaur with the huge claws yeah it's just the biggest spaz they're a dinosaurus 
It was like part sloth, part bird, yes. part dinosaur. So he it shows is... up, and you're like, oh, no, this guy's bad news. And first off, he looks so goofy, just goofy as hell. And then he just wrecks that deer and then just starts <laughs> oh, eating yeah. some bushes. And I was like, you're such an asshole. That was a set piece I really enjoyed, actually, was uh, Claire, Bryce Dallas Howard's character, like slowly crawling into the water as it loomed over her. That was really cool. That was yes. great. The split scene where the, the water line goes through the middle of the screen and she's underneath it and he's right above it and they're only actually like two inches apart. I was and like, oh, that's that's dope. That's really then good he, framing. But then, it, then it screams at the water and runs away. And it's like, man, this <laughs> thing, this Therizanosaurus has got to get it together. It's You've such got, a spaz. You can't say spaz, man. I can't, why not? It's an ableist term, bro. Is it really? I didn't know that. Well, now I know. I did not know that. I won't say it anymore. And then the other thing I liked was like the random, I know we're jumping past the plot and whatever, but like, I want to say some good stuff before we're, after yeah. we just trashed it a whole bunch. <laughs> it, it was dumb, but I really liked at the end, they were just like, yo, this is a cage match. Like, let's kaiju battle. Like, <laughs> like a, like a three-way WWE for the belt. Let's go. The, they're on a zone or whatever. And then the Gigantobigosaurus and the Tyrannosaurus <laughs> just like squared off. And then for like, Seven minutes, the humans just didn't matter. Alan Grant literally says, this is not about us. They run away. I was like, this this is not about you. You're right. Yeah. Um, we'll talk more about that scene when we get to it in the plot summary. There's some stuff that I liked about it too. We'll, we'll get to it. But for now, hold on to your butts because we're hopping on a hyperloop to hell as we talk more about Jurassic World Dominion. giant sprawling cast of characters in Jurassic World Dominion. Uh, we got Chris Pratt, 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 back as Owen Grady. Bryce Dallas Howard. I love her. She's great. As, as Claire Deering. She's the shining star of all this, all three of these movies, in my opinion. Yes. Um, yeah, and then we have the original cast back. Degraded and debased at every turn in this movie. Uh, Laura Dern as Dr. Ellie Sattler. Jeff Goldblum back as Dr. Ian Malcolm. And Sam Neill as Dr. Alan Grant. What did you think of the original cast in this movie? Let's do it now. Jeff Goldblum was good, but I feel like they... They forced him to pull back a little bit, less Jeff Goldblumy than Bloomy than normal, which like was kind of a shame because in my in my head at least, and I'd like to assume in all of like the pop culture zeitgeist, Ian Malcolm is the thing that sort of like solidified Jeff Goldblum as Jeff Goldblum, and they they like used him as the vehicle to deliver the message, which they did in the other ones too, but like. There was just something off about him to me. It was Jeff Goldblum as Jeff Goldblum. It wasn't Jeff Goldblum as Dr. Ian Malcolm. Ian Malcolm has a searing edge to him. The part I was talking about earlier where he gives the speech to the class, I thought that speech was pretty amazing. It really, like, I can't believe we're seeing this in a Hollywood blockbuster that he's just, like, going off on how the system works, which is, like, completely normal for his character, right? But, like, why would he be working for this genetic research company that is against everything he stands for? Why is he yeah. working it was weird. And then Sam Neill is just kind of like just along for the ride. Sam Neill is back as Alan Grant, and he's the uh, the Lando in Rise of Skywalker, where he's just like, hey, it's me too, guys. I'll wear my hat. And but, he's but grumpier. A lot grumpier than ever before. His accent is there for the first half of the movie, I think. Uh, he's His New Zealand accent is just pumping for about probably 35 minutes of this movie. <laughs> 
doesn't even, doesn't even bother to try anything else. I kind of felt bad for these three. You know, the first thing that they teach you about in like paleobotany classes is uh, giant mutant locusts. So I didn't I know you've been to those classes. That's really I, I've, 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 I took a few um, online courses this summer, paleobotany, just to get ready for this movie. That's the experience I try to give you all in this podcast is like, I do it for you. Dewanda Wise is Kayla Watts. I thought she was cool. She was a little bit like black woman written by white man, but she, she's the pilot. She's the pilot. Yeah. Kayla she Watts. Ruled. She had no good reason for doing anything she did, but she ruled. And then they even asked her <laughs> at one point, you'd give your life for people you just met. And she was like, yep. Okay. But she was really fun to watch. And she was uh, crackling the whole time. She just, her charisma was off the charts. Isabel Sermon as Maisie Lockwood. Remember the clone from the last movie? Campbell Scott as Dodgson. We got Dodgson here. B.D. Wong as Dr. Henry Wu. I have a lot to say about B.D. Wong. I don't know if we should talk about it now or when we get to the plot summary, but like Henry Wu in in all three of these movies is so hilarious to me. Omar Sy back is Barry, everyone's favorite character, Barry from Jurassic World. Remember Barry? He's back in pog form. I didn't realize this. Lewis Dodgson was like the bad guy from the very first one? Yeah, he was the guy that like they sit down and he gives he gives the barbasol can to Nedry. That's why he pulls out the barbasol can at the end. Is like, oh boy, what have I done? I was trying to figure that out because right before he gets et, like he drops the can and he like looks all sad. And I was like, was like, was like Nedry like your dad or something? Like why why do you <laughs> why do you have that can? Does it secretly still have DNA in it? Because that seems dumb. Yeah. So music by uh, Michael Giacchino. Arguably the best part of the movie is the score. There's this beautiful cello melody that's throughout the whole film that's just way too good for this movie. This is a movie about locusts predominantly, and Michael Giacchino is just like going off. That cello melody I thought was just like so, so wonderful. And there's parts of it where it's like, I would not be feeling anything right now if it wasn't for this music. There's this really beautiful shot at the end uh, that's like a, a vista of a lake with a brontosaurus or a brachiosaurus, whatever, kind of sauntering through it. Yeah. And that music is playing. I was like, this is nice. <laughs> I was like I, like, I like this part. And like, there's a really like mournful part in the score where brachiosaurs are, I guess, the, the vehicle for emotion in these movies, but where they're guiding it away in the snow from the construction site, like I mentioned earlier. Yep. That part was um, cool. So wonderfully done. And I was like, okay, okay, maybe this isn't going to be a total train wreck. And then it was. But stuff like that was really selling the movie for me. Like, how cool. Like, of course, that's what you'd have to deal with is crazy, huge dinosaurs just fell asleep at our construction site. We got to slowly lure it off with a, with a flare. Like, Michael Giacchino, just my guy since Lost. And he's having a hell of a year. He's got the Batman score, the Lightyear score, and this one as well. So, doing his thing. I admit to only noticing the music when it was the Jurassic Park theme. I like to listen to the scores. I listen to them separately. And like, he's really sparing with the Jurassic Park nods. The movie had a budget of $185 million. So far at the box office within like, with like a week and a half of being released, it's made $429,885,110. Rotten Tomatoes score of 30% with the critics, 78% audience score. What's going on? They're like me, man. You just put your good times hat on and you're like laser guided dinosaurs chasing a dude on a motorbike. That dinosaur got clotheslined. Like there's a lot of like cat on the kitchen floor moments for the dinos. Well, Owen does like a really slow turn. <laughs> they deserve better. The audience deserves better than this. I agree. Uh, um, yeah, Metacritic score of 38%. Generally unfavorable reviews is what that qualifies as. I like how polite that is. 38%. Generally unfavorable. There's not a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff on this yet. It just came out. I have a fun fact for you. Oh, go for it. This is the longest Jurassic Park movie ever. Uh, you don't say. 
And it's why the prologue got cut because it was too long. And the studio heads were like, Colin Trevorrow, you're turning this into an arty flick. This is not Ben Hur, my good sir. You know, I didn't think it, I didn't, I didn't feel like it was that long. I got done and I was like, oh, it's over. And then I read that it was the longest Jurassic Park movie of all time. And I was, I was surprised. I took a bathroom break during the final 25 minutes of it. I was like, I got to, oh, man. I just got to get up, man. <laughs> I got to like walk around. I got to mention this real quick. I, w- I wanted to mention it at the beginning of the, of when we first started talking about it, but I went to go see it in IMAX and everything's going fine. The previews are great. Everything's everyone's settled in their seats, eating their popcorn, hanging out. The movie starts, and the, the a prompt comes up on the screen. It says, "Please put on your 3D glasses now." And nowhere on the site did it advertise that it was a 3D movie. There were not 3D glasses sitting out going into the theater. So I see a person get up and like run out. I'm like, "Oh, they're probably gonna go tell them that they put on the wrong one." I see two more people run out. I see three more, five more, <laughs> ten more. Everyone's getting up out of their seats and running as fast as they fucking can out of the theater. And I was like, are they, do all these people think that the people before them aren't going to tell the projectionist or like the manager that this is the wrong version, but no, it was just people darting to get 3d glasses. And there was like a box of them that was sealed. Like it just got shipped in and everyone like a zombie tearing a guy apart was just clawing this box open and pulling 3d glasses out of it putting them them back on and running back into the theater before the movie started so i had to get up and like as the movie was starting run 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 and and grab 3d glasses from like the front of the movie theater and run back in uh it was weird really really insane it was so crazy because it felt like an emergency a little bit because everyone was like (laughs) kind of everyone was kind of like panicking like what do i do what do i do what do i do and they got up and started running and i was like i i guess i gotta go do this otherwise i'm gonna watch an out of focus movie the whole time so i grabbed the guy next to me a pair and then he and i were bros the whole time brothers in confusion once again a really insane theater experience what so was it actually it actually was in 3d then it wasn't 3d ah. and i was like i can't stand 3d anymore i'm like so over it there was like no reason for this movie to be in 3d anyways i digress that was my theater experience it was it made me grumpy when the movie started so maybe this is actually the, the best movie ever made but i was grumpy to begin with so. <laughs> um and now to prove what I went, what I just said was wrong, we're going to get into a little bit of what Jurassic World Dominion was really about. So yes. um, the movie starts with this really insane, like now this style newsreel video that's like a total ADHD flare up of exposition dumping where it's just like, and this happened, 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 and then this happened, and the government's looking for this clone girl, and it's like... Okay, the logo flies out in 3D in my case. What we learned, you know, it's been four years since the cataclysmic volcano eruption on Isla Nublar uh, and the incident at the Lockwood Estate, which we will cover next week on the show, I promise, during Jurassic World (laughs) Fallen Kingdom. And dinosaurs live amongst us. So Claire Deering still works for the Dinosaur Protection Group, but she's been completely radicalized as a result of this paradigm shift of dinosaurs repopulating the Earth. That whole scene was just the dumbest, though. I do like the evolution of her character where she's just like, we're Greenpeace now, but for dinosaurs. <laughs> it makes sense, but it was just like, what are you doing right now? So, you know, she and ex-Navy man slash ex-Raptor trainer and current lover Owen Grady live in a remote cabin in the Sierra Nevada mountains, secretly caring for Maisie Lockwood, Benjamin Lockwood from the previous movie's clone granddaughter, who was a contemporary of John Hammond. Yeah, you're definitely, definitely, definitely supposed to remember her because you've definitely seen Fallen Kingdom. Uh, <laughs> 
multiple times to remember this. So Owen's trained Velociraptor Blue unexpectedly arrives with an, with an asexually reproduced offspring. Uh, Maisie names the child Beta after all of us, like Beta Cucks, who paid our <laughs> hard-earned money to watch the movie. Unbeknownst to Claire and Owen, Biosign, uh, not so subtle as I mentioned, Apple, Monsanto, Facebook, Theranos conglomerate that conducts genomics research on dinosaurs and seeks cures for diseases and like agronomic applications, wants to study Maisie's DNA for nefarious reasons. Maisie, frustrated with living in seclusion, sneaks away across the bridge. She's not supposed to go across the bridge. People are, people are looking for her. You know better, Maisie, you, you crazy hormonal teen, you. Uh, she sneaks away and uh, biosign operatives slash poachers, like dinosaur poachers, kidnap her and Beta. Yep, yep. <laughs> That's so- what happened, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Elsewhere... Swarms of formerly extinct giant locusts have inexplicably reappeared and, we should note, appeared for the first time ever in this franchise. And they start threatening the global food supply. Paleobotanist, right? That's it. it. I want to say biologist every time. Paleobotanist Dr. Ellie Sattler arrives on the scene of a recent giant locust attack and observes (laughs) that the locusts avoid eating crops grown with biocide seed. Hmm. Leading her to deduce that biocide created them. Brilliant. Just brilliant. Uh, all of that sentence is just, something else. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know about the movie. That's like all you need to know about how insane it is. It's like, there was why? like a, there was like a five second. She looks over. She's like, why are they eating those crops? And then the, the miffed farmer lady was like, those are biocide crops. <laughs> and she's like, she goes like figures. Like, okay. So, Believing the locust DNA dates to the uh, Cretaceous period, <laughs> Ellie approaches former partner and paleontologist Dr. Alan Grant in his wonderful Kiwi accent. Dr. Alan Grant agrees to help investigate biosign, even though he clearly only ever dealt with dinosaur bones or cared about dinosaurs or digging in the dirt or being in the desert or living in his yeah. tent. That's all he wants to do when he's real grumpy about it. I cracked up so much because she's like we got we have one of them i'll show you he goes the size of it is massive (laughs) good thing we brought it to alan grant so he's a (laughs) locust expert it's massive great job i mean to be fair it was pretty big it was like the size of his arm he was right now cutting back to owen uh with some assistance from barry who you definitely remember from jurassic world who is now working for french intelligence claire (laughs) okay (laughs) we go from raptor trader to french intelligence Uh uh-huh uh it's so weirdly specific, too. When they were like, he works for French intelligence. intelligence. I was like, of course. Naturally. Good job, Barry. Claire and Owen track Maisie and Beta to Malta. I'm glad to be back in Malta. You know, set of the Robert Altman Popeye film. Always good. Where they infiltrate an unsavory dinosaur black market where dinosaur fighting pits and roasted giant locusts abound. Can we talk uh, about this for a quick second? I'm interrupting. Of course. We could talk about it for two hours. It's, so the way I think of Fallen Kingdom is Evil Dinosaur eBay. Sure, sure. The, I went the, back the and, working title of the movie. Yeah, I went back and read a synopsis of it and was like, I did not watch this movie. <laughs> I watched <laughs> watch the Evil Dinosaur even. But the, the whole end of that movie was like this whole big, you know, the haunted house full of dinosaurs, but really it's there because like dinosaurs in the black market and blah, 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 blah. And then in this movie, it's just like, yeah, it's just like a thing people do, man. They, they like have an open air dinosaur market and like it's black market, but like it's literally just a town square. There's there's like open arches and like no security, but like dudes are just rolling around with guns and like bazookas and laser guided yeah, dinosaurs, and there's like fighting pits, and then there was so many guys that were just eating like 
hot off the fire dinosaur meat off like a stick. The world is still intact. You can go do things and like eat at restaurants. Yeah. And stuff. You don't have to tear off like raw dinosaur meat and eat it. Sorry. My son does this thing whenever he's eating hot dogs. He wants to eat them like a cool guy, right? So like he grabs the hot dog in a big fist and he puts his, his arm out with his elbow, like points it up a little bit and he chomps the thing in the side of his mouth and then like tears his head off to the left. And then he's like, I'm eating a hot dog like a cool dog. And every single dude was like, every third scene in this thing was just some dude eating dino meat like a cool guy, like straight out of the fire. It sounds pretty cool. <laughs> Maybe Colin Trevorrow saw your son eating a hot dog. It was like, here's how you got to eat that raw dinosaur meat. Um, complete agreement, though, because they literally like, I feel like they just like pull back a curtain and like walk in. Yes. It's like. It's like, this is all very illegal. It's like, someone could just like walk in and shut this whole thing down. Kayla is like, you want no part of what's going on in here. And it's like, it seems all right. It seems kind of like. I know. Like, I like know. across the street, that dude's just selling tomatoes. That's just a tomato guy. He's like a normal <laughs> human. He's like, I want to go in the dinosaur clubhouse. <laughs> uh, generic, some generic authorities raid the market. And several species of dinosaurs are released by bootleg Vanessa Kirby, the ringleader of the underground dinosaur trade that just start causing havoc. This is. Um, not the first time that we see the Chris Pratt, whoa, their hands coming out, but this is when it starts to get ridiculous because he does it to every dinosaur in this movie. <laughs> the reason it works for Blue and like the other ones is because he trained them. But in these movies, he's just like, whoa. And then people and then people see him do it and they're like, whoa, dinosaurs, stay, stay put, stay right where you are. And it works every time. They're like, okay, yeah, we well, got to leave that guy alone. So yeah, all these dinosaurs start going crazy. There's dinosaur pandemonium. A biosign employee, while literally on the ground, pinned to the ground, having both of his arms eaten by two different dinosaurs, yeah. is just like having a conversation with Owen and plays it really cool. That dude's name is Rain Delacourt, and he had long hair and a face tattoo of like a scorpion and a trench coat. So like, that, he's going to play it cool no matter what's oh, happening. Yeah, Ray, Ray Delacourt. Rain. That, that's a great poll, Mark, because I was laughing. I was laughing so hard at the. I, he hands him the iPad, and it's like the, the shadiest looking picture of it. It says Ray Delacourt. I was like, that's. I feel like the whole movie mm -hmm. might have existed so he could put a, the name Ray Delacourt in it. It's uh, rain, like the shit that falls from the stuff that falls from the sky. Even worse, rain. So yeah, he plays it pretty cool, especially really cool for a guy that's having both of his arms eaten by dinosaurs at the same time. And Owen's just like talking to him about and trying to get information. And he gets it from him, but the dinosaurs are still like snacking on his arm, and it's completely insane. That dude rolls immediately, by the way. Well, yeah, because he's being eaten by dinosaurs. Uh, and uh, he tells them that Maisie and Beta are being transported to Biosign's secluded headquarters uh, in Dinosaur Valley in Italy's uh, Dolomites Mountains, Dol uh, Dolmite Mountain Range. I think that's how you say it. Uh, Dolomites. Uh, it's it's Italian though, buddy. I know, but uh, like I'm going with Dolomites. Um, so he, he finds out that they're being transported to Bioscience Secluded Headquarters slash Dinosaur Valley in Italy's uh, Dolomite Mouse Range. Kayla Watts, a sympathetic cargo pilot, offers to fly Owen and Claire there. Depending on who you are, a completely unnecessary Jason Bourne slash James Bond style chase, or if you're Mark, uh, a completely necessary Jason Bourne slash James Bond style chase breaks out through the streets of Malta as Owen rushes towards the cargo plane while being chased by laser-guided raptors. Yeah. Uh, how, can you not, how can you not read, Owen rushes towards the cargo plane while being chased by laser-guided raptors and think to yourself, this is not necessary. At this point, I was kind of thinking, like, my brain, like, completely split down the middle, and I was like, hell yeah. And I was like, what the fuck? Uh, but 
he boards the cargo plane at the last second, jumping off his dirt bike. The dirt bike slams into the front of the plane and starts sliding back, knocking the remaining pursuant raptor out of the plane and into the Mediterranean Sea below. Meanwhile, our chaos theorist, Dr. Ian Malcolm, inexplicably working for Biosign, invites Alan and Ellie to the headquarters to help him uncover CEO Lewis Dodgins, who, if you don't know, is from the first Jurassic Park, <laughs> uh, illegal activities. Dodson greets Alan and Ellie and Ramsey, Dodson's assistant, who, by the way, that guy was great. Oh, he was good. I wish he had a lot more to do besides be like, hey, this is crazy, guys. Follow me over here. He had a really like low-key, like understated way of playing his character that I appreciated. So Ramsey gives Ellen and Allie a guided tour of the Apple, uh, sorry, Biosun campus. Uh, it's revealed through a lengthy exposition dump. This movie was good at those. From Lewis Dodson, who still is from the first Jurassic Park movie. Uh, that Henry Wu just can't stop himself from genetically altering things. Dude is addicted to DNA. He can't stop. <laughs> he can't help himself. So he gave in to his impulses and he produced the genetically altered locusts to consume only the rival company's crops, <laughs> which if you blinked for like a half a second in this movie, you would have missed. But this will allow Biosign to dominate the agricultural market and they'll all be filthy rich. That's what you want. Right. So Wu meets Maisie and he explains to her that she is not actually a clone. Instead, Charlotte Lockwood, <laughs> Benjamin Lockwood's daughter and Wu's former former colleague, uh, used her own DNA to create Maisie as her child, which I think, like, Holy isn't that cow. what they did with clones? Like, the real clones, not, like, the Star Wars clones? Like, don't, like, when they cloned the sheep and stuff, wasn't it actually grown in another sheep? That's a clone. Yeah, it's still a clone. He's wrong, in more ways than one. You took that class this summer, and he's wrong, because you were getting ready the Method podcast. So, Charlotte dies uh, from her genetic disorder. Uh, but she had she's altered Maisie's DNA to make her immune to this disorder, which is great. That would be Jesus sad. Christ. Uh, Wu believes that Maisie's and Beta's DNA. Hold on, I need a minute. This is the craziest <laughs> thing. Wu believes that Maisie's and Beta's DNA are the key to creating a pathogen to halt the <laughs> locust outbreak. And why, Mark? Why is that the <laughs> key? Hold on. Hold on. Wu believes that Maisie's and Beta's DNA are the key to creating a pathogen to halt the locust outbreak. Still doesn't make sense the second time through. Let's extrapolate this a little bit. <laughs> Dr. Henry Wu, helping create the dinosaurs at the original Jurassic Park, believes in this moment that Maisie, a clone human girl, and a baby raptor, <laughs> the combination of their DNA are the key to creating a, a pathogen that will stop giant locusts from destroying the world's food supply. And why does he believe that? Completely unclear. There's so much about that that's just completely bonkers. I mean, I'm on board. I'm on board. I got my good dad's hat on. But like, what? What is happening? And we're, we're giving this emotional conclusion to like a thrown on plot element from Fallen Kingdom. Literally, I think no one in the world gives a shit about. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's wild. But the thing I wanted to say about Wu is what you mentioned in this part is like in all three of the Jurassic World movies, he's like, ah, I did it again. Why do I keep doing this? He's like, in, the, in this movie, his hair is like shoulder length and he's so like strung out and is like, I can't keep doing this to myself. I, I, I made a costly mistake. I can't believe I did it again. You, <laughs> you had me make an Indominus Rex. That was once. You made me make an Indoraptor. I still did it. And then you made me make 
mutant locusts? What is wrong with me? And it's like, Dr. Henry Wu, you need to walk away from that life, man. You need to quit. You need to go get a job at Costco or Wendy's or go somewhere and just completely cut yourself off. It's a toxic environment for you to be in. I'd order a Frosty and Fries from Dr. Henry Wu. And you can't help yourself. He would probably genetically alter it somehow. And it would be like, ah, I did it again. But <laughs> I don't it, need to dip these fries in this Frosty because it's been genetically altered to taste like fries. The fries are in the Frosty already. <laughs> and you're like, woo, buddy, I told you not to do it. But, oh, man, it's so – I was cry laughing in the theater because he's just, he's just like, ah, uh, here's Mark's favorite part of the movie. Upon reaching Biosign airspace, a Quetzalcoatlus attacks Kayla's cargo plane, just fucks it up, like tears it open like a fucking can of tuna and then takes off. They decide that Claire should eject on her own and that Owen and Kayla will just crash land in an icy lake and be totally fine. Just pop that, the top and hold up. jump I just, out. I, that, okay, again, I, there's so much in this movie that I just, I definitely had my good times out. <laughs> <laughs> so like the plane's crashing. And they're like, yo, there's there's only one ejection seat. You gotta eject. But we'll meet up with you in the forest. Yeah, we'll find you. Just all stay in the plane. Like you clearly think you can land this thing. The amount of confidence they had in, in that the, their crash landing that they would survive their crash landing was yes, a, a, just an unreasonable amount of confidence. Yes. So they crash on like this icy plateau. Claire's lost in the woods. She encounters our favorite Therizinosaurus. At the same time, Owen and Kayla are squaring off with a pyroraptor, which is like this like feathered raptor thing that's like diving under the ice. And Kayla and Owen both just have basically like uh, Henley t-shirts on at this point. And they're like fine, even though it's like freezing cold. Owen falls into like a sub-zero uh-huh. iced over lake. And he's just like, ooh, that was crazy. And like, just shakes it off, like shakes and he's like dry. There were 1,000 different kinds of raptors in this movie, by the way. Oh, yeah. They used the raptor budget wisely in this film. Yeah. So the three eventually find each other. They regroup and set off once more to find Beta and Maisie. Inside the biosign facility, Ian and Ramsey provide Ellie and Alan access to a restricted, a restricted lab where they do a whole bunch of like interminable sneaking around nonsense while searching for a DNA sample to prove that the biosign locust breeding plot is real. And in the process, encounter Maisie, who is, you know, broken free from her cell after discovering the locust lab was breached dodgson ignites it to destroy all the evidence inadvertently creating a swarm of flaming locusts that burn for like an insanely long amount of time and like crash out of the facility in this like flaming hellstorm of locusts that are dropping out of the sky like comets and crashing into things they set the whole forest around the bios <laughs> this is the part where i'm just like it, again Again, feels like a fever dream that I'm just like yelling into a microphone to you about flaming locusts. We're off the rails. After having his position terminated by Dodgson, Ian Malcolm rescues, he goes off and runs away, but he don't remember how, but ends up at the mouth of this cave where Alan, Ellie, and Maisie are trying to escape from the facility from this like underground mine, like the amber mines. And <laughs> Jesus Christ, uh, there's a bunch of like, Dimitrodons, like those crazy like alligator looking uh-huh. dinosaurs with with a big fin are chasing uh-huh. them and chasing them about to get them but then Ian types in the code but he really just gets freed so then they all hug and they're all everything's safe and they just run off into the woods and they find this like high hide tree compound kind of thing in the forest that's that's currently on fire around them but guess what at that point the Gigabigasaurus shows up. The Gigantosaurus shows up. Mark, did you know the Gigantosaurus is the largest apex predator known to man? 
I thought it was the T-Rex. No, it's the Gigantosaurus, the largest apex predator known to man. You should have been paying attention because the movie tells you about 100 times during it. It's like, what is that? The Gigantosaurus, the largest apex predator that's ever walked the earth. Oh, no, here it comes. What's that? It's the Gigantosaurus, the largest apex predator known to man. And you're like, we get it, dude. It's bigger than the T-Rex. We get it. I got to talk about the Gigantosaurus. I got to share this quote from Colin Trevorrow. And this is just, this should tell you all, you all you need to know about Jurassic World and Colin Trevorrow's like creative intentions. But this is what he said about the Gigabigasaurus. I wanted something that felt like the Joker. It just wants to watch the world burn. He he did that, but it was with our favorite dinosaur, Therazabon or whatever it's called. Oh, yeah. But you also watched the forest burn, which is kind of like his world. But like, that's an awful lot of intention to put on a dinosaur. <laughs> like. <laughs> I think a dinosaur's intention, I think, I think, I think a dinosaur's intention is to eat things and stay alive. It doesn't want to like cause chaos throughout the world, (laughs) which is really crazy because the next part of the movie, the Gigantosaurus like stole all the money from the earth's underground banks and then just set it, (laughs) just set it on fire just cause. Yeah. It was crazy. And then he put innocent people on two uh, ferries and then two boats. Yep. Yeah, I made them choose who blew each other up. So I He looks great in that nurse outfit. Yeah, he looks really good. A dinosaur in a nurse outfit really does it for me, strangely. We're gonna that, that's our podcast, folks. Before it gets even weirder. Take it away, Mark. Meanwhile, Dodson, who is totally still from the first Jurassic Park, attempts to escape with dinosaur embryos uh, via the hyperloop system. When the power fails, we're all very surprised. He becomes trapped and subsequently killed by three Dilophosaurus. That's the part where I took a bathroom break and I missed that part. Yeah, but it was very, you know, it was a poem because the last <laughs> thing he does before he dies is he looks at that Barbasol can. Damn, dude. It was Should, a poem. That's comeuppance, baby. George Lucas style. Yeah, it all rhymes, baby. So electronic devices uh, call all the dinosaurs back to Biosign headquarters and also light their heads up uh, <laughs> to protect them from the fire, which was an interesting thing to me. Like, oh, no, there's this fire and we've caused this all this chaos and destruction and madness we should protect all the assets that caused the chaos and wanton destruction and madness instead of just like not you know what's a great idea is to get every dinosaur that's its own separate food chain in the same room together <laughs> i know i thought about that like this is gonna be a disaster so electronic devices call the di- dinosaurs to the biosign headquarters to protect them from the fire while owen captures beta and wears them on a back like a backpack that's actually oh, yeah. real, real adorable a t-rex appears blocking their escape route but just then like the gigantosaurus gigantosaurus and therizinosaurus there say it for me therizinosaurus Therizinosaurus, our favorite dinosaur, appear and battle the T-Rex WWE Raw style. That's what I'm talking about. The T-Rex is seemingly killed, but comes back to life. That's true. I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. It zooms in. It zooms in on his dead eye, and it's like, it's back. The T-Rex comes back to life just in time to form an alliance with the Therizinosaurus, which also didn't make any sense, but I love the moment where the whole movie just slows down and gets quiet. And it's like almost like the screen stretches wider as the two dinosaurs make eye contact and they just stare at each other's eyes. And I swear it goes on for like 30 seconds. And I'm like, what is happening? And they just fall in love. And then, and then they just destroy the Gigantosaurus together. When I realized what was happening, like the dinosaurs, the, the T-Rex is back alive for no reason because it got its neck bit. And the, the, the other one is there. And they make a really deliberate point of like having them like, 
make eye contact and look at each other like over top of the Gigantosaurus. And it was this super weird moment where I was just like, blah. And that's where my brain broke. And that scene lasted so long for me because it was so deeply bizarre and strange. This happens. And and while it's happening, I'm thinking like, they're going to up this Gigantosaurus and then they're just going to peace out because like they're like bros or they're in love. Like, these two dinosaurs that should fight each other are just going to be like, nice. Yeah, bro. And they did. <laughs> they did it. They roared at each other and they took off like, yeah, baby, we got it. Who's the apex predator now, bitch? Yep. Our group of intrepid heroes escapes via helicopter taking Wu, uh, who claims he can eradicate the focus <laughs> with them. And this is great. With uh, his manic energy. He took some of Maze's DNA and he took some of the dino DNA and he put yeah. it in one locust and he releases the pathogen he discovered. And the way the movie frames this, all the locusts just immediately died. They chased that and one and died. Didn't make all any they died. And I realized they're probably assuming that, like, we just assume a progression of time, right? Like, oh no, they need to get out there and populate. Like, but but the way it's presented in the movie, like he goes out there and he releases it and he gives like the world's most like satisfied smile or whatever. Like, I'm finally at peace, right? And before he like disappears into his own clothes like Yoda, they just all die in like <laughs> three seconds. It's yeah, very weird. Remember, I took a paleobotany class, and yeah. I, the first thing yeah. I learned about mutant locusts is when you combine the DNA of a mutant child and the DNA of a mutant raptor. Remember, when you combine those together, it's very, very deadly for mutant locusts. Yeah, yeah. and so, they don't like, they really don't like outsiders. So like, they don't like it. What happened next? Uh, well, thanks for asking, Mark. Ellie tells Alan she'll take the locust samples to her contact at the Times. Ellie Sandler is so beyond hooked up in this, like the power cycle of the world, <laughs> the hierarchy of like the chain of command, because in like Jurassic Park 3, She's like, oh, Ellen Grant's in trouble. She calls the Navy and the Navy shows up. In this movie, she's got, I'm assuming, New York Times connections and then like CIA connections. Ellie Sattler is like the shit. She knows what's up. Ellen Grant and Ellie Sattler get together. They kiss under a propeller. Then they get together and join Ian Malcolm and Ramsey to testify against the corruption of Biocide. Owen, Claire, and Maisie return home and reunite Beta and Blue. Owen gives Blue a little what's up, like head nod, and Blue gives a little what's up, head nod back. Thanks, bro. And then he's like, yeah, bro. And he just yep. scampers, off, scampers off into the woods. Around the world, dinosaurs adapt to coexisting with modern animals, which we should have seen through the whole movie, not just at the beginning and the end. And the United Nations declares Biocide Valley a dinosaur sanctuary. Why would uh, they do that? The audience is exhausted, and we all go home. <laughs> Why would they do that? They could declare it a dinosaur sanctuary where they can all live, but the final shots of all the dinosaurs are not in that sanctuary. They're right. still just like hanging out right. wherever they want to. Yeah, once again, human interference will control the dinosaurs for sure. Just like we've learned from all these movies, it always works out for the humans. I don't know, man. I I had zero, next to zero fun watching this movie. I had a lot of fun watching this movie. I wanted a comet to hit the earth while I was in the theater because we don't... <laughs> deserve nice things anymore and we should probably all go extinct taking some time between it and now and recording this there are some elements that were fun you know it's always good to see some dinosaur carnage the dinosaurs looked pretty good dinosaurs fighting is crazy even if it completely takes away from the character moments that are happening and really is kind of super boring to watch it really is i don't know i i'm just i'm kind of like speechless i don't really like i feel like i usually have some way to sum up the movie i just really have no words for 
how this concluded. I don't understand how we got from, I definitely don't understand how we got from Jurassic Park to Jurassic World Dominion. I, I still, I really kind of don't understand how we got from Jurassic World to Jurassic Park Dominion. What are your, what are your final thoughts on, on Jurassic World Dominion? It doesn't need to exist at all. And it does nothing to advance any of the narrative. And it is a colossally stupid movie. If it's like 95 degrees out and your AC is busted, go get some fucking milk duds and watch the shit out of this dumb movie and put your good times hat on. <laughs> it's summer, right? That'll be great. If you, if you don't have a good times hat, you can borrow Mark's because he's seen it. I got no, I, I've just got nothing for you. Do do whatever you want. Life is too short. We've all, you know, need to find our way in this life. <laughs> and I, I, I just do what makes you happy. If seeing Jurassic World Dominion makes you happy, that's great. If it doesn't, that's great. If you choose to just stop watching movies altogether after Jurassic World Dominion, that's also great. Everything's great. Everything's fine. With that being said, we're going to face the trials. Let the trials commence. To close it off, Mark, I'm going to ask you, if you were to create an attraction at a fully functional Jurassic World, what kind of ride would you create? Like a, like a, this, so this isn't like I'm going to Universal Studios and ride a Jurassic Park ride. No, I'm this is like a Jurassic, Jurassic World. Park. Yeah, Jurassic World, the Jurassic Park is real. You are in charge of creating one attraction for it. What is it? So that's a tough question because I feel like the, the attractions at Jurassic World are literally just like drive around and look at dinosaurs. You know, like roller coasters and stuff. They can be. Here's what I would do, right? I'd, I'd sure. put in a roller coaster, right? It would be educational. An educational roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, day in the life of a T-Rex. But the car, right? You're inside a giant T-Rex head. And the car is basically like the back of its tongue, right? Like your, your, your car is its tongue. So like you're zooming around. And you're seeing everything the T-Rex sees. Like, so like, you know, it gets started and it like wakes up and it goes on the hunt. And like, you have all these like water balloons that are shaped like other, other dinosaurs, you know, like the mouth opens and it chomps on them and you get all wet with like, they put some food coloring in it. So it looks like blood. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm following you still. It does. It's like morning eating. And then like, it's like takes a nap or whatever. So like you go through like a really dark tunnel, right? just dark sleeping sure. mostly you just bite into what? big fun filled dinosaur shaped water balloons from the inside okay. of a giant t-rex head while you go around on a roller coaster and you could do like a loop-de-loop and the top of it is like a flying dinosaur that you eat okay <laughs> that would be our right. ride okay so so to recap that's a, pretty, that's a pretty good ride so to recap it's an educational roller coaster <laughs> where you are seated in the t-rex's tongue Riding around in the dark, chopping on water balloons filled with red food coloring. Yeah, like it's uh, eating them. Just like a Tyrannosaurus Rex does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what else do T-Rexes do? Like, they just eat stuff, and then they take a nap, and then, like, I guess at the end, like, when it stops, the head keeps going, and you come out the backside. <laughs> the head the head keeps right on going. Because uh, <laughs> that's uh, what happens to food. It just shits you out at the end. That's my ride for Jurassic Park. As they create a severance package for Mark as a Jurassic World Imagineer and send him home. That's a, pre- that's a pretty good ride, man. To work with Henry Wu at Costco after his after his third relapse in genetic engineering. I can't believe um, no, people love those ones where you just go down on the dumb log and get wet. Like, that's true. They love that ride. 
But what if you were inside a T-Rex? Then you were just like, holy shit, that T-Rex just bit the head off like a, <laughs> like a brontosaurus and I'm covered in red water. Sure. What if you were on the tongue going around biting water balloons? I like it. I think it's good. If Jurassic Park slash Jurassic World was real, you, Markleosaurus, would you go? Uh, absolutely. 100%. Yes. Especially if it had those little bubbles I could ride around in. Especially if they had an educational roller coaster where you could <laughs> ride around on top. For sure. Uh, uh, no, yeah, for sure. The, the little gyrospheres, absolutely. If Jurassic Park was real, there would be so many bonkers safety things. It'd be fine. Yeah, Osho would be like, we saw the movies. You got to go, right? You learn nothing from movies. The world keeps doing what it wants to do anyways. The question we've asked all of our guests so far, what's your favorite dinosaur? Uh, Triceratops. Triceratops, classic. 100%. They're so cool. They're like they little cool. tanks, man. I remember reading this book when I was a kid, and they'd be like, the, the, the T-Rex is like the greatest predator. It eats whatever it wants. And then you'd flip the page, and it would be like, except the Triceratops. And it was just like a badass mama Triceratops, like goring a T-Rex to death with like oh, some yeah. eggs under its belly. All the Triceratops illustrations were always the bloodiest ones because of the horns. I think that about does it for our Jurassic World. Well, hold on. What's your favorite dinosaur? Oh, it's the Ankylosaurus. Is that the one with the uh, with the with the rugby tail? It's got the ball and chain tail and like the spikes yeah, yeah, on his yeah. back. Enough said. No, yeah, we're done. That caps off our discussion this week of Jurassic World Dominion. Thank you, Mark, for a spirited conversation about a, an abysmal movie. Thank you for thank you for doing this with me and taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me. Maybe we'll pick a movie that's good for you to come on and talk about next time. So I've been waiting for you, Obi Wan. We meet again at last. Oh, oh. He's holding me back. Hello there. All right, everybody, welcome back. I'm joined by our Star Wars correspondent, Stephanie Cole, to dive deeper than the muffled wailing sounds coming from my house after viewing this episode into the Obi Wan Kenobi finale. So, welcome back, Stephanie. I'm happy to be here. I can confirm that there were muffled wailing sounds coming from my house as well. So <laughs> I think that's where we all were. I have to ask you, um, how does it feel to follow Jurassic Park Dominion? It's an interesting, I think, pivot uh, tonally, thematically, <laughs> emotionally. Um, yeah. I'm I'm kind of glad uh, that I guess I get to follow that because I guess it could be a nice refreshing. I mean, I'm not going to say what... People should think about that movie, but I feel like maybe this might be a nice little little ray of sunshine um, after after those feelings. So I kind of felt the same way after watching Dominion uh, that Vader felt after Obi Wan and his duel in this episode. I was just yelling Trevor at this at this guy. <laughs> Trevor! Trevor! Wanted to come on and just kind of discuss the ending of this amazing show. Last we checked in, Stephanie, you were super on board. I was 85% on board, but had some misgivings about the treatment of Vader. As soon as we put that episode out, like all of that got corrected for me, like instantly with the episode five. And then obviously this episode, I was like, okay, never mind. I'm an idiot. I'm podcast. It become inner after the series is wrapped where, where you sit on Obi-Wan. Are you still as enamored as you yes. were? Yes, okay. I am. And I also am like, surprisingly even more enamored than I was before because I there were things that happened in the there were things that happened in this finale that were 
just perfect and everything I needed them to be. And then there were things that were so great in a way I didn't even expect or know I needed, but I was surprised in the best possible way. And yeah, I'm blown away to be quite honest. I'm really blown away by how they managed to make it all fit and answer so many questions about the original trilogy it really reminded me of Rogue One in that like it actually added necessary dimension to aspects of the original trilogy not like not tie-ins for the sake of tie-ins but dimension that actually explained things like actually added clarity to certain themes and emotions I I was really very impressed and I can't wait to rewatch the whole thing I completely agree with you at this point because it's the themes and the emotions getting filled in that I think are the most incredible about how this this series wrapped up. I'm like hard pressed to find the words for this episode because mm-hmm. it took it took me to a place that I don't think Star Wars has taken me since the Yoda scene in The Last Jedi, mm. uh, where he says talking to Luke and he says we are what we gr- what they grow beyond. That is the burden of all masters, and that just like hit me like a ton of bricks because I I was at this point in my life where I just become a new father. And it's like, that's really what being a parent is, is like you are training your child to, mm-hmm. to grow, grow beyond you and, uh, you know, outlive you and, and hopefully live a better life than you. And so that was like, oh, wow, Star Wars is like growing up with me. And then this episode hits and the emotional release, we'll get to it more, but the emotional release of seeing Kenobi get to say to Darth Vader's actual face or to Anakin's actual face, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, I, I'm like getting, I'm like choking up just talking about it. Right oh now. God, yeah. It's just like the look, the look on Obi Wan's face, on the emotion on his face, and just this emotional catharsis of like, I am sorry for all. He says for all of it, right? It's just so powerful, and I think about this from season six of Clone Wars, from and the the finale when Yoda says, "No longer certain that one ever does we win a war." I am for in fighting the battles, the bloodshed already lost we have yet open to us a path remains that unknown for the sith is through this path victory we may yet find not victory in the clone wars but victory for all time and it just really struck me especially like episode five when that came out and it was like oh my gosh he's he's reconnecting to the force because of how much he cares for the Skywalkers and how much compassion and love and how he's found that again in his life and his purpose through this, you know, I'm going back to episode five just for a second, but how he chooses, you know, he hands over his lightsaber, all of his earthly belongings. And he's just like, there's other ways to fight and chooses instead of chasing after his obsession or his vendetta or his guilt to go fight Vader. He chooses to save an entire ship and an entire colony full of people because he's playing four-dimensional chess of, you know, this is not about me right now. This is about the continuation of hope and mm-hmm. happiness and joy in the galaxy through other people finding these same connections that I'm finding through Leia. So you cut to this episode, and I had parts of me that thought that they would not square off again. And that was the lesson we were supposed to take away from this, is that Obi-Wan is like the ultimate Jedi because he's bringing back this concept of defending life, not taking it, and compassion over selfishness, compassion over passion. And I thought that that was going to be the takeaway, but then they then he gives himself up 
to basically save them again. And he's like, this is the only way you're not going to die. Going into that duel and not taking that opportunity to kill Vader. I've seen a lot of people like, why do you just kill him in the moment? Why didn't, you know, and I, I thought that at first, I thought that at first too. And like, besides like continuity reasons, it would be a pretty big departure from the original trilogy if uh, Darth Vader died before it started. But like, besides that, it's just this moment of like, this is not a moment for me to make a choice this big. Mm-hmm. This is my time here and my story here has been resolved. I felt like I still had a chance to bring back my best friend, my brother, but that brother is gone. I'm out of here to like to fight another day and to put my energies and my time into victory for all time, not just a, something to make myself feel better, which I think is like mm-hmm. the ultimate Star Wars takeaway. The ultimate Star Wars life lesson is like mm-hmm. how crippling fear and anger and hate can be to your life if you don't just let them go and move on. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I'm like so overwhelmed. Just I know. It's this. so it's so much. And I mean, I have a big thought about his decision to leave Anakin there because like this whole story is about him sort of rediscovering his love for the Skywalkers sure. in totality. Like, so he's falling, like he's getting to know and caring about Leia. He is sort of solidifying how he feels about Luke because beforehand we get the sense that he... Like, in some ways, when Owen calls him out for, do you really, like, care if he's okay? He's kind of right, because I think that Obi-Wan is kind of just going through the motions. Like, he cares, but he doesn't care because – he cares because, like, that's how he can, like, find a purpose right now. But It's like an obligation. It's not – he's not emotionally invested quite yet in Luke in the way he is by the end. And – And so I think that as he's regaining his connection to the force, because he's gaining this love, which is, you know, interesting because it's supposed to, you know, no attachments is supposed to like be the Jedi way. And I mean, honestly, that's why Mm -hmm. Anakin turned to the dark side was because of that like contradictory and and unhealthy forbidding of attachments. Like Obi-Wan finds the force again by rebuilding attachments with the Skywalkers. And in that process, I think he rediscovers like, love for Anakin because this is the first time it's like that first time that he says sorry to him like the whole time in the Clone Wars and the the prequels he never like he's doing his best to be there for Anakin but he never says he never gives Anakin quite the support that he needs and like just like is frank with him about how he's feeling so like in a, in Revenge of the Sith when um Anakin is extremely like the the part that always messes me up the most in revenge of the sith interestingly enough because it's not even one of the most dramatic parts is the part where anakin's really upset that the council wants him to spy on on the chancellor and he's like trying to get obi-wan to say like that's not you you can't be asking me that why are you asking me that like my friend who i trust why are you asking me to do something i don't want to do that doesn't feel right to me and 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 obi-wan like you can see him almost being saying like I know I agree and I'm sorry and, you know, like tells him, but instead he's just like, the council's asking you. And it's like, oh, like you cannot be that, like on Mustafar, he's like, I failed you, but he's not talking. He doesn't ever like directly address all the points where he could have been there for him that he wasn't. And even in the Clone Wars um, final season, when he's like noticing things in like the, um, 
final arc with Ahsoka on um, Mandalore, you know, he has that like um, hologram convo with with Ahsoka and he's like, talks to her for a second. He's like, you need to talk to Anakin because like he's not doing well. Like like things are off with him. I think you need to talk to him. And then like next thing you know that all the he could, turns into Darth Vader. And it's kind of like he's like saying, uh, Ahsoka, you need to talk to him. Like he knows like he wants to do the right thing and like talk to him, but he's just like can't quite bring himself there. So like the fact that he gets to the point where he sees Anakin there in that fight and says like, I'm sorry for all of it. Like he is for, he's also like regaining that connection with Anakin and like able to sort of come full circle with that. I have a real like Vader helmetless Vader obsession and Mm -hmm. I've had it since I was a kid. Like ever since like the part in uh, empire strikes back where the helmet's going on, I'm like, Oh, we can take it off. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, the, the fact, you know, we get this moment in rebels as well in the uh, twilight of the apprentice where Ahsoka knocks open, like cracks open the helmet of her former, uh, of her former master. And it's impactful. And it's a really like, it's an image that's like seared into my brain. But when we see Anakin in this, like this moment kind of echoes, it definitely echoes it, the live action aspect of it. And the fact that it's, it's, it's Hayden and not an animated Anakin with Matt Lanter's voice, the fact that it's Hayden behind there. And it's that warbling, broken apart distorted speaker of his voice yeah. i'm his voice vader's voice and i'm i i swear by it that there's a little sebastian shaw mixed in there somewhere <laughs> i swear it it's like it's like oscillating and it gets there i, 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 I <laughs> maybe that's I, just how hayden's voice sounds like when it's mixed with ooh, the james Earl jones yeah. voice <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like all over and i like i'll swear by it like i'll i'd put money on it if there's like a gallery that they'll be like yeah in the sound mix we put a little bit of sebastian shaw to bring it all together but <laughs> the, so random. the humanity of, of Anakin in that moment was mm-hmm. never more apparent to me. Yeah. And like the fact that they included the labored breathing, like at oh the end gosh. of Return of the Jedi, like yes. really highlighting the fact that he is basically dying and absolute physical suffering and that this thing that looks so scary is just walking life support and that it's actually really sad what's happening underneath absolutely like, that was so impactful yeah the tragedy of anakin skywalker in this moment was the most palpable it's ever been in star wars yeah. ever there's a lot of like tell don't show going mm-hmm. on with like oh he's now he's darth vader and he did this and you know obviously the clone wars is like some course correction for that but like i don't know having hayden in that moment, and like I said, the humanity, but the in, the inhumanity at the same time. There's the moment where where Obi Wan apologizes, uh, and then Vader says, "I'm not your failure, Obi Wan. You didn't kill Anakin Skywalker. I did." Threw me for a loop, and it shook me because it was just like there's a moment where he he's Anakin for a second, mm-hmm. and he's tapping into something and saying like, "Don't. It's just n- not your fault. Like, don't blame yourself." But then he switches right back to monster mode and is like, I killed Anakin Skywalker. And he's like, yeah. I'm, now I'm, and now I'm going to destroy you. And like, there's this moment, this glimpse of, you know, uh, like there's still good in you. I feel I can sense it. It's like, yeah, it's that, that conflict and the back and forth between the personalities. And, you know, Hayden was talking a lot about that in interviews about how he treats Anakin Skywalker and Darth Vader as the, as one and the same and mm-hmm. it kind of twisted this version of him to me even more where it's like oh my god it's all kind of happening at yeah. the same time and it's all just this torment of you know you, you think it's like 
just kind of trapped in his head somewhere. But it's like really like his shame and his grief and his hate and his fear are all kind of like symbiotic and like yeah. working together. It's really, really strange and so, so, so well done. That was incredible. And I feel like it's like he's so he's so emotionally I think that he's so affected by the fact that Obi-Wan is saying sorry to him for so many things that he never acknowledged while they were master and apprentice that it just knocks him out of Vader for a second, maybe, you know what I mean? Like totally. And he, I think that like this concept that him and Vader are kind of different people. It's, it's hard. It's constantly being challenged. And I think that like, you know, he's like, I did, I killed him. He's partially like, absolving obi-wan of guilt and also saying the same thing that he has to say to himself the whole time which he has everything that he does as darth vader he's like constantly has to convince himself that that's his will to do like he did that i am doing this on purpose no one else is telling me to do this well it's clear that like you know he's being manipulated and actually it's a horrible tragedy he is the only way he can get through it is to convince himself that no, Anakin Skywalker was a flaw and I am Darth Vader now. And, you know, in that moment, Obi-Wan refers to him as Anakin, but I love the way that when he leaves, he calls him Darth. Ooh, it, it hits so hard. Yep. And that's so what hard. he's going to call him in A New Hope. It did close that because that, that hasn't bugged me. I'm just always like, oh, that's so fun and goofy that they don't really match up. He's calling him Darth like it's his name and not his title. Mm-hmm. It closes that loop in this like hard hitting way because it's like, damn, he just said that. Like, it's a real like lightsaber drop moment. It already hit hard when you start talking about it. Like, oh, he sees Luke and Leia together. That's that's amazing. But now you see this and how much that Obi Wan put into defending both of them like you said it just it just heightens everything that's what brought him out of that like you know rocks like brought him out of the underworld and during the fight like he dug himself out from the underworld you know real joseph campbell stuff here by thinking about the skywalker twins and therefore it all comes back to it because then on the death star he is back there sees them together for the first time and says, all right, my work is done in this point. I'm ready yep. to go. It's time to go. Um, it's so good. <laughs> and that's the victory for all time. And that, yeah. that's, we'll talk more about this with the Qui-Gon aspect of this. Episode, oh, gosh. Yeah. Their victory for all time is the aspect that, that turned Anakin into Vader in the first place. Is this need to prolong life and to save life and to resurrect life and to bring life back. And their victory is finding balance and compassion and accessing parts of themselves where they can access that eternal life mm-hmm. that's their victory is passing on the light side of the force or the lessons learned about being a jedi or the lessons learned about the cosmic force as these perpetual beings from from that point on this is like where i set up my star wars tent mm-hmm. i could talk about this shit all day long yeah um, the amount of like foresight is even the wrong word because that just implies like He's got a real knack for these kind of things. It's just like the the amount of sacrifice and literally sacrifices his life, but the amount of sacrifice of like things that would give him like instant pleasure or gratification, just beating the hell out of Darth Vader, you know, and like killing him. What would that bring him? Nothing. But meanwhile, Anakin is like boiling in his hatred at this point, basically. It's like 
one of the most stirring renditions or versions of Darth Vader that it might be my favorite time that I've ever seen Vader on screen, which is funny because two episodes ago, I was like, <laughs> I'm not feeling this Vader stuff. I know. <laughs> I have a sister that I'm estranged from, from like addiction and just making really horrendous life choices. And like, mm-hmm. I just don't speak to her and I've kind of removed myself. And one of the constant thoughts I always have is like, did I do enough? Did I do enough to help her? Could I still help her if I wanted to? Is it too late? Do I need to like go and and help? And can I pull her out of this? That's exactly what's going on here is just that letting go of absolving yourself of the responsibility of someone else's choices Mm -hmm. is the ultimate forgiveness because it's self-forgiveness and true like purging of responsibility from things you cannot control. Mm-hmm. And just letting it go is is the ultimate victory over life, basically. It's just these moments of like just really letting yourself move on to something new and more fulfilling beyond like this self-harming emotions that you have. So it's like it's just really like it was hitting all the Star Wars notes, but it was just like it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately is this relationship or lack of relationship with my sister. And so once again, like Star Wars like follows me along to where I'm at mentally. And it just, that's why it just hit even harder because it's like everyone has an Anakin in their life yeah. or wh- whether it's a person or a flaw that they perceive in themselves, everyone has something that they think that they're responsible for or could have done more to prevent that they just need to like let go. Yeah. And this is like the ultimate Star Wars trope is, you know, forgiveness and redemption. And that goes for even like redeeming yourself. I know oh, yeah. I, I, I keep hitting that home, but that's just, it just really was a beautiful aspect of this episode. Really was. And I think that just sort of speaks to the fact that as much as I, as all of us who love Star Wars this deeply are like, you know, admit that it's a little silly sometimes. The reason I come back to it all the time is that this is like timeless stuff that genuinely helps people like fans like you and me, like with as serious aspects of our lives you know what i mean like it's like it's it's timeless and never always relevant messages that they seem to always find new layers for like it yeah it's all based on campbell and stuff yet every time like i find a new star wars thing there's like a new lesson or a new layer to like what it has to say about about things like it's like really the best ever uh continuation of george's intention that it's like gonna be like a mythological guide to life for 12 year olds like they've really kept that going and made it a guide to life for way more than just 12 year olds you know that's what storytelling is supposed to be and it's like it's storytelling is supposed to give words and faces to things and feelings that are intangible try to explain things that are so intangible that makes it universal and brings people together mm-hmm. and so you can relate to it and it's mm-hmm. like star wars is the ultimate version of that because in one episode you have like a, a weird mole man driving a truck that sounds mm-hmm. like elmer fudd or something then you have an episode like this where you're like i'm a kind of podcast like talking about things i talked to my therapist about you know? i know like, but that's star wars <laughs> it brings it out of you i just thought you know even beyond that like the duel itself was handled so wonderfully and, and just one of the best looking if like duels in all of star wars and just mm-hmm. i was thinking about mustafar where there's you know lava flowing everything's like in flux around them and it's like their relationship the state of their friendship and brotherhood as is is completely exploding and changing it's this yeah constant state of change and the galaxy as well is in this state of flux where it's just like yeah. everything's kind of 
Everything's Explosive exploding. And uncontrollable right yeah. now. And then you cut to this, can't, I don't know the name of the planet, but it's rocky and it's ashen and it's these solidified rock formations and it's rigid. This is like a clarifying moment for Obi-Wan mm-hmm. and for not so much for Vader. He still doesn't really get it after this, but like... <laughs> To an extent, though, for he a moment. He does it, he doesn't. He does it, he doesn't. He has, he has like a, a moment of clarity. And then he has to go and like put his like uh, ball and chain back around his neck for old Palpatine, who's just like, old Papa Palps. Did you, did you forget about me, motherfucker? I'm the yeah. emperor. Can't go off doing your, these emotional things. And But yeah, this this planet where like all their, you know, their relationships are just like solidifying and it's like choices are being made, like concrete choices. And it's like, I was trying to think about why that planet was so barren as opposed to how like explosive and on Mustafar and how dynamic that was. But this was not. And it was just about mm-hmm. them. It was so mm-hmm. personal and so, you know, just the two of them in this void. That's really what it's all about is the two of them are in a mental void for each other, you know, where it's like mm-hmm. one of them lets it go. One of them, it just strengthens their hatred. Crazy show, so <laughs> by good. the way. By yeah, the way, I mean, crazy show. They really... They could have, it could have felt like a second, a rematch, as Kathy Kennedy put it, could have felt so unnecessary. Like it could have felt so ham-fested. It could have felt like not needed. And yet they managed to pull off the impossible and make it just what we needed the whole time and just perfectly beautiful and unexpected. Could not have stuck the landing any harder. I do have slight issues with like the Riva and Luke and Baru and Owen part, but for the most part, I really loved that too. That's the second half of this episode. You know, the big focal point is the Vader Kenobi duel, but then we have the closure of uh, Riva's storyline where she's on Tatooine hunting down Luke to kill him, and then eventually, after a really unexpected shootout with Baru and uh, Owen, I loved that. <laughs> yeah, corners an unconscious Luke, and then you know, decides in that moment that she's no better than Anakin if she slaughters a kid for revenge. And on second watch, it worked a lot better for me, but I think it was, I was really just so drained from the Ken- Kenobi and like- It's a lot, it's fight. a tough act to follow. <laughs> it totally is. And I, it like, it's not that it flops, it's just kind of like, it's just all that serotonin in my brain is destroyed from that part of the episode that this was like more of a harsh come down for the series. But then when I watched it again with a more like focused intent, it's really a really wonderful ending for her as well, especially where she's talking to you and that's like basically it's like not too late for either of us. What did you think of this part? Well, I was walking on sunshine because I was hoping for some good for Baru to do anything. So then to, for her to end up being like the Rambo of this, I was just like, oh, I, I think that like that was the only time because I think that me and me and my sister watched it together. And most of the time it was just like dead silence because we were just like so like shocked and emotionally moved by everything we're seeing but the second Baru started being like I'm a, yeah. I'm a fuck shit up it's like so excited I was so excited I was like yeah Baru I was loving it and I was like here's one re- I, but like more than just like the the joy and like unexpected but like there's no reason why Baru wouldn't be that way we don't really know that much about her why not it was their moment to change that yeah, they were like, here, we'll tell you something about Baru. She gets shit done. <laughs> That's what Baru does. <laughs> but like it added, I think, also beyond just being fun, 
some wonderful dimension to Owen and Baru as characters who genuinely deeply care about who they consider their son, essentially. Like, I think that in A New Hope, we get this sort of sense because it's from Luke's point of view and, you know, George is like using that as kind of a metaphor for him, like wanting to leave, you know, Modesto, like American graffiti style, like the older generations trying to keep you down type thing, you know? Parents don't understand. I just want to have some adventures. I want to stay on the farm. But like, you know, so it's like got that vibe. Like you get the sense, like, a lot, I don't think a lot of people watched A New Hope for the first couple times and were like, felt that they really like, were like, oh, this is a lovely family. They're like, oh, <laughs> Uncle Owen's such a buzzkill. Like, you know, how come he won't let Luke go have some fun, you know? Oh, and then they get killed and Luke's sad about it. But like, you don't really get a whole lot of emotion there. So you're like, oh, okay, I guess he can go now. Yay. <laughs> so yeah. like, I think that, there was a little bit of maybe, um, and then like in Attack of the Clones, like all you get is Grumpy Kleeg and you're like, okay, and, and Owen and Baru barely say anything. So, not like, that Grumpy Kleeg is not enough, but <laughs> Grumpy Kleeg is great, but they, he doesn't do a whole <laughs> lot to to like um, soften the grumpy reputation of Owen. Let's just say and the Lars. And- the uh, Lars family. Stop the Lars cycle, you know. The Lars cycle of grumpiness, <laughs> <laughs> but like I think that this was a wonderful little shift around to like give you a different perspective and show that like Luke is in as loving a home as Leia is in. Because it's such we a good have, point. We've had a lot of um, emphasis on how good parents Bale and Brea Organa were to Leia, but we haven't had a whole lot of like content to support how much Owen and Brew love Luke. Until now, in which you get to see them literally, like, decide to, like, fight an Inquisitor for their child, you know? And I just love that. And, I mean, it's, you know, definitely Baru's the one who's, like, getting the shit together. But Owen's there, too. Like, they, they're they <laughs> there for, for him, <laughs> you know? Baru was like, listen up, motherfucker. Here's what we're doing. <laughs> like, exactly. And Owen's like, oh, okay. Yeah, you're- up. <laughs> I, I love it. I love that she called him out for, like, because he's like, Ben's gone. And she's like, yeah, and whose fault is that? And you're like, oh, Miranda. <laughs> you, you know that he, clearly she got mad at him after that yeah. happened. He's like, so Ben's gone. And she's like, you fucking idiot. <laughs> it helped solidify like so much about both their characters, their relationship with each other yeah. and their relation, their, their role as a family and how sure. much they love Luke. And I just was like, that is really important. I feel like that they are, I mean like, and it's, it's something that like one could know if you thought about it, like obviously they had to understand the risk and danger of taking this child in when they did. It's such a gigantic responsibility. Yeah. And so obviously there had, they had to genuinely care about him. And obviously you wouldn't want him to leave Tatooine and go like to the Imperial Academy. If you know what's out there for him, like, obviously, like, it seems like it's just like grownups don't understand, but it's like, it's, <laughs> they don't want him to go there because that's that would be bad. They love him yeah, and they don't want that to happen. So it lends this atmosphere to that to those scenes now that like this is a tightly knit loving family that's just so used to each other and yeah. so used to being like this that like 
that love is is just there under the surface but it's like it is grumpy owen it is like sassy baru and it is like whiny luke because that's that's kind of like what happens in a loving family is that yeah everyone just cares so goddamn much about each other that like you get on each other's nerves and you yeah especially when you have like a 19 year old yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly you know, exactly a born 19 year old like <laughs> yeah for sure and it's like it comes down to it he wasn't captive yeah um they were just like, I wouldn't do that. Like, I yeah. Sounds bad. Why don't you stay here with me and help out a little bit more? Um, and he's he's even like, you can go next year, which is like, I mean, he might find a way to not make that happen if he had been around. But oh yeah, like that's still pretty. Like considering everything he knows, that's that's a lot to be like. Next year, you can like go potentially work for your <laughs> real dad, <laughs> you know. But also um, the other thing that I think it adds great layer to is the death of Owen and Baru in A New Hope because you're like, okay, so you see that they like really are ready to like fuck shit up the second that they think Luke is in danger from Imperial baddies. The second. The second. <laughs> so, so it gives a new layer. Like maybe it wasn't as much of a like passive massacre as one might think when you first saw the burning homestead True. like yeah, great there's point. a chance that owen and baru when those imperials came a knocking were like all right guns out it may not they may not have had to use so much force if maybe some people didn't like suddenly come out packing you know what i mean less of an execution more of like a showdown more of a uh, showdown or even yeah. just like they i mean like the the uh, the the empire when they arrive there they're just tracking the droids they don't know that there's like the son of Baru. Darth Vader there, or <laughs> yeah. Baru. They don't know that the son of Darth Vader's there, but then right. Owen and Baru see them there, and they're like, oh, shit, there's only one reason they can be here, and then suddenly the Stormtroopers are like, holy shit, we didn't expect these moisture farmers to, like, <laughs> come out Ran at us down. with guns. Yeah. We just wanted to ask about some droids. I guess we got to kill them now. <laughs> and you know? Baru always strapped. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Owen saying, like, he is my own. Full out claims Luke. It's so beautiful. This whole episode, so everything about it's it is so, so good. beautiful. You know, just hearing Owen say, like, that's basically him saying, I love him. It's beautiful. The actual Reva aspect of it, going through and chasing Luke until, you know, he falls off an overhang and, like, passes out. Just that cutting back and forth to seeing the images of her. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought Moses Ingram was stunning in this episode. Oh, yeah. Carrying the gut wound and then just, like, but still just so determined to go and do this. But then turning on a dime, basically, and being like, what am I doing? Um, mm-hmm. I struggled with it a little bit at first because I was like, okay, so like executing Jedi and then I'm sure she's killed other, at least younger people, if not other kids. And like, this is the moment where she's like, oh, I'm a lot like Anakin right now. But I chalk it up to the dark side and I chalk yeah. it up to hate and anger taking her over and kind of becoming alluring to her and uh, tempting her into that. The force is a really good stopgap for anything where it's like, that doesn't really make sense. It's probably the force. (laughs) Well, something I also thought of in that moment when she's like approaching him, but she sees him as her. I was very affected by that because the way I saw it was kind of like she is preparing to kill herself, her own humanity. Like she's approaching, she's like, she's the second I saw that I was like, okay, she, while she's doing this, she's like consciously like, I need to kill my own inner, inner innocence to get this revenge. Like, I love it. Like the way that Anakin is like, I killed Anakin. She's like in this moment, like I need to kill 
me, my former self. I love it. And then stops herself from doing it because she realizes that that's not how to find closure for like everything that she's done and all that pain. So that's kind of how I interpreted it. Like the second I saw her approaching her own child self instead of Luke, I was like, oh, she's like trying to make herself really go fully there and kill who she was, but she can't do it. That's so well stated. And it becomes consistent with the theme of the other episode, which Mm -hmm. is like confirmation of self, right? And it's like everyone going back to their justified versions of themselves, the, the versions of themselves that they think that they are completely. And then to see that forgiveness or that moment of more compassion from Obi-Wan Kenobi and then the two of them talking through it. Can I just say one thing that I loved that was kind of just more on the fun side? Yeah. I love that the second Obi-Wan leaves, well, he leaves and then he comes back and the moment he comes back is just Owen and Baru just standing there going, Luke! Yeah. Luke! <laughs> just like in a new hope, Luke! Luke! Oh, but man. together, and he's just like, oh, God damn it, I, I walk away for one second. Like, you know he got the force sensing, but he's like, I walk away for one second and I come back and it's just, Luke! i really just there's just so much to unpack in just this episode alone let Mm -hmm. alone going back and watching it all together as like one cohesive unit but it didn't really need to turn around for me but the the show itself like just really nailed its thesis statement you know Mm -hmm. like just nailed the presentation and Mm -hmm. uh for any any nitpicks or any kind of misgivings i had about the effects at any point or anything like that like the, the emotional imprint that the show is like left on me as a Star Wars fan, as just someone that likes drama and just, I don't know, just good storytelling. Just what an ending. I just, yeah. Ending on talking to Leia, telling Leia, like, we have to keep this a secret, but then saying like, these are the traits you get from your mother. Mm-hmm. These are the traits you get from your father. Forget it. I'm done. I'm out. I'm just, I'm just laying on the ground at that point. Ending it with the biggest smiles and like the, you know, he gets to see Luke hands on the Skyhopper himself. Which makes sense because obviously Luke has to have met him because he knows right. who he is in A New Hope. Right. They really did just, yeah, they nailed it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And he's he's dressed like that sideshow, like mm-hmm. scavenger Obi-Wan for the callback to that. But then just seeing like all smiles basically on Obi-Wan's face at the end, he's okay. Things are at a, at a place where he can finally breathe. He's found yeah. himself and he found his way back to happiness. And, and, and he's matching the temperament that Alec Guinness has in A New Hope. Like yes, totally. a wise, but also just generally like good natured and positive. Closer and closer to that refined Obi-Wan. And then to get Qui-Gon at the oh. end. <laughs> I think like... I was actually gone at that point. Like I think the, the show <laughs> had just killed me. And I, I always forget that that happened because I keep thinking it wasn't real. Like I keep thinking a dream. And I'm like, obviously we knew we had to have Qui-Gon, but like, I was absolutely done by the time that happened. So I still keep forgetting that that happened. And not only that, it was just full on blue glowy force ghost. Yeah, Being like, hey, I'm going to show you hey. how to do this so you can have a big old combo with Luke on a yeah. log in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One one rule of being a force ghost, though, is that your hair is going to look way crazier than the last time you saw me. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> that's uh, always the case. Remember, remember Luke's... Um, Force ghost hair in Rise of Skywalker. It's so crazy. I love it. It's so, it's so bad. So I, crazy. I think that it's like, I expected just to hear like Qui-Gon's voice and then like, yeah. boom, there's Liam Neeson all blue and glowy. And I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. It took you long enough. The best part about it is that 
we don't get the conversation. We don't get the the catching up and the moments and the personal moments between them as they walk down that I'm like Beggar's Canyon. And it's like, I don't want a season two for that reason, mm-hmm. because it's so interesting to me to reserve the conversation that you want between two people that you want have wanted to see talk again for 20 plus years. It's not for us. It's for mm-hmm. them. It's for Obi-Wan and it's for Qui-Gon as they walk away. And that's such a beautiful, I'm so like overjoyed by this episode that I'm saying beautiful a lot. It's such a beautiful notion that like these two old friends, after all that that Obi-Wan's been through and all Qui-Gon's been through to get to the ability to project himself as a force ghost, the two of them just being like, so how you been? Like just walking together is so great. Yeah, it was just such a wonderful, this is the start of a beautiful friendship kind of ending to like, I was just like, this is so good. They're walking off in the sunset. Just two best friends finally reunited. I don't want to see more of that right now. No, I'm so satisfied with this that I I would actually, yeah, I'd be totally fine with this being the, the end of this story. They just nailed it. And I don't think that they need to do anything else. All the actors said that they would absolutely do another, uh, like a season two, just let it breathe for future generations where we thought we'd never see this story. Let's not see that story for 20 years, you know? Yeah, like, we have lots of Star Wars to look forward to. Yeah, let's be allowed to like imagine it. We're not going to go through the plot or anything, but is there anything else that you wanted to add about this finale? I can't really think about it, except that I was just very impressed by how this definitely felt like a very cohesive and focused kind of six hour movie, like very much the definition of what a limited series should be. Sure. And yeah. I would love to see them do more of these. Like I love the Me idea too. of like an ongoing series um, and I cannot wait for Andor and I've loved the ongoing series they've had so far, but I think that it'd be really cool to see them do more focused, but more long form than a movie storytelling because they just did this so well. Even if it doesn't tie in like the larger mythos you know just just tell a really refined one and done story and and then move on to the next story that you can tell Mm -hmm. i'm just like over the moon about kenobi personally you know i'm glad i got there as well i like i we were saying beforehand that like it feels good to have something like this that we can just watch and over over and over again too and i gotta get myself emotionally prepared to like just go for it one more time cool yeah i think that's it for obi-wan and that's it for this week of best one since the next one follow us on instagram at b1n1pod make sure to follow us rate subscribe and review us on apple podcasts click the bell hit follow rate us five stars on spotify thank you to christian cramo for our theme music and then also thank you to stephanie cole for talking about one hell of a finale so oh god yeah always happy to be here (laughs) thanks for help giving me a place to talk about this stuff We need an outlet for this. We do. Yeah, thanks for listening to Best One since the next one, and we will see you next week. Bye.